0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Jose Andres became a celebrity as one of America's foremost chefs. His own personal journey is an inspiring one, from a small town of modest beginnings in northern Spain uh, to the impresario who runs 25 restaurants around this country. But what has earned him the respect of so many are his humanitarian efforts to help those who are hungry, to help those who need a second chance, and most recently, to feed the starving residents of Puerto Rico in the wake of Hurricane Maria. I had a chance to sit down with them recently to talk about all of this, and left more inspired than ever. Jose Andres, so good to see you, my friend. You know, this is what we know about you. You have a sense of justice, you have a sense of fairness, you have a sense of obligation to help People, but it all began with a sense of smell. That's what I've learned uh, back in, uh, in the day in northern Spain. So let's start there and how you became so enamored of cooking. David, I'm super thrilled to be here. And do you have many chefs
2: coming to this?
1: You know what? Uh, I'm the probably you're, all, you're only the 10th or 11th chef we've had Ah, okay, no. something, nothing you know. No, we, yes. you're, you're, you are blazing the trail
2: right. for us So I'm expecting more in the years to come Yes, Thank well, I'm,
1: if, they, if they are uh, socially active chefs they get, they get to jump to the front of the line So, uh, David, you know, I'm a, I'm a cook I left school
2: when I was fourteenth, But for me, cooking always uh, signs very early on Why? Was so important. Listen, uh, I was born in Asturias, a uh, mining area in a tiny town called Mieres. And it's in northern Spain. Yep. Uh, uh, super green, a lot of cows, rivers, salmon in the spring. Um, but we need to remember that the, the Spain I grew up in, uh, restaurants were a luxury. Everybody had to cook at home. Everybody will go for the bread every morning. If you ate fish, you will go to the fishmonger. Uh, everything was daily. The refrigerator is not like it was full. You will buy for the day. Those were the days. And my mother or my dad, they will always be the ones cooking. That's the way it was. Um, I still remember the end of the month when already was not a lot of food left around home and many of the leftovers will be used for making the meals like croquetas those chicken fritters that today I cannot believe I charge two three dollar each <laughs> but that those were the the hunger dishes the were those were the dishes like while my father was waiting for the next paycheck my mother will be able to multiply whatever was left and it's funny I never remember the biggest steak moment or the big fish I remember all the dishes that my mother made during the last week of the month, with almost nothing, and those are the dishes that sometimes attach me
1: to my childhood. Uh uh-huh. And and why did I understand why the the the, the tastes and the, and the foods appeal to you? But <laughs> excuse me, the preparation of it. Why why were you so uh, into that? Listen. Um,
2: Watching, just my mother being in the kitchen and 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 just going in and give her a hand. Uh, that to me probably was the highlight of of the day for me. Um, I still have the the aromas of those roasted red peppers that then she will saute with garlic and olive oil. And you she will kill me, man. We're never going to get through. I'm going
1: to have to leave it. She will cook them for an hour you. until
2: they we become <laughs> like confit, soft. <laughs> Sweet, a touch of sherry vinegar at the end. Those peppers still. I try to recreate with the memories I have of of the smells, of the aromas, of putting the finger. Uh, if she was not watching, uh, and, and that moment that you will bring that that finger that, of something, I felt I was stealing. It always tastes so much better. Uh, Is she
1: still living? Or?
2: No, my mom. My mom was a nurse. She passed a year and a half ago. Um, what did she
1: think about your uh, career and your success?
2: Well, they were always very, very proud uh, of 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 seeing this boy that came very much America with fifty dollar and and so how managed to 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 have to have a restaurant and then two and and everything else. Obviously, yeah, mothers and fathers. Or- 30 already,
1: I think, uh, in my last But who's count. counting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, did, but did she approve of the tastes? Did, you think you, did she think yeah, you were yeah, doing yeah, it right, yeah, or did yeah. she say, you know what, <laughs> not quite up to snuff?
2: No, no, she was, uh, like every mother, uh, or like now my daughters, they would only give you enough credit uh, so you, you, you are, you had to push yourself harder. And I think that's key on life. I think family members, if anything, they need to be honest with you. And, and many of our family structures, I think, yes, giving support, but also pushing everybody forward. No, not, not saying everything is okay. You have to, to, to push harder to convince everybody that you could be the best chef.
1: And, and what did your dad do? My
2: father is retired now. Uh, another, no. Uh, he was well, what did a nurse he do to, back then? Uh, a nurse, oh, also a- in the hospital. So I was born in Asturias, but we moved very early on to Barcelona. Uh, so even if it's Spain, Asturias and Barcelona in the in the province of Catalonia, they are two different things, mm-hmm. it's like Alaska and Florida. Yes. Uh, I always felt I was always an immigrant because moving into Catalonia was a different language different way of living, different ingredients, different foods. So you will say Spain, a small country, but it's so amazing how very early on I always learned that very much we are all immigrants. In the moment we move away from the place we were born.
1: Catalonia is obviously the the uh, seat of a lot of unrest right now. What do you make of what's going on in Spain? Well, I I wrote uh, op-ed for um, the
2: Washington Post for Miss Hart, because I feel, uh, I'm very proud of Spain. Uh, I feel very proud of where I was born in the region, Asturias. But then I feel very, very Catalan. I speak and write uh, fluent Catalan. Many of my family members are Catalan. And we have different points of view. And me, I try to be a man of inclusion wins the day. Uh, I cannot understand how Catalonian, especially Catalans, uh, that they use one verb, one word called "seny." Seny in Catalan, S-E-N-Y, Seny is common sense. And if you ask any Catalan, everybody will always describe themselves as people of seny, people of the best common sense on the face of earth. And somehow I don't know where that seny has gone. Because if nobody wants to be, part of, if some people don't want to be, of Spain, I respect it. If they, if they don't want to be speaking Spanish, I respect it. But what I cannot respect is that they are not respecting the bigger majority. That you see a lot of people on the streets on TV doesn't mean that everybody wants independence.
1: It's kind of a problem, not just all over Europe, but here as well. You know, everybody has sort of absolutist opinions, and even if they're in a minority, that's tough in a democracy. Uh, if uh, if the minority is unwilling to accept.
2: But we need leaders that don't try to bring people to the streams. S- those leaders that want to break away from the rest of Spain, they claim that the Spain is suppressing Catalonia. And I'm only going to be giving these facts. Catalonia speaks its own language and is taught in every single school, 90% of the time. Catalonia has many newspapers in Catalan. Catalonia has more than 100 radios in Catalan. Movies are watched in Catalan in every movie theater. Catalonia has its own police. Catalonia has seven TV stations owned by the Catalan government. Catalonia has the biggest level of independence of any region in Europe. So we cannot have leaders that keep selling the story that catalonia is being oppressed by madrid when actually catalonia is one of the most amazing regions anywhere in europe anywhere in the world where the economy is thriving where immigrants have been arriving and they've been adapting where catalans are catalans but then everybody else is whatever they want to be adapting to the catalonia way of living pretty much like america mm-hmm. so almost what i see some of those leaders that want independence from spain is almost like a catalan trumpism Mm-hmm. Let's use breakaway with, with everything. Why? Because we have to break. No, has to be a reason of why you want to break. It's not about breaking, it's about improving. And Catalonia ain't going to be improving, or Spain, by having Catalonia moving away from the rest of Spain.
1: Just returning to your story, uh, you, joined, you joined the Navy. Yep. Uh, why did you join the Navy?
2: Well, in Spain, uh, the military service was mandatory but probably was the best thing ever happened in my life again i left school fairly young 14 15th and then the navy for me was kind of this moment i became a man um, um when i was very young in the port of barcelona i saw a ship called juan sebastian del cano and that ship was the training ship for the midshipmen mast majestic mm-hmm and my father told me, if one day you do the military service and you end in the Navy, you should try to go to that boat where only the few are able to go. Well, I ended cooking for the admiral because already I was a fairly good cook. I was 18 19th. And, uh, and I told the admiral, I'll cook with you. But the day that boat leaves port... I want to be on that boat, and <laughs> he uh, say, "Okay, granted." And was the biggest adventure of my life. Six six months. Was the admiral on the boat as well? No, no. But uh, was so he was willing
1: to part with your cooking. That's how much. Well, he got to in trouble with his wife.
2: I'm not gonna. Tell. I still remember her. His wife is screaming, "What? What you've done <laughs> in this house? I'm in charge." I'm like, "Well," uh, but I was able to go on the boat. And his first time I came, I saw the world: Ivory Coast and Brazil and the Caribbean. First time I saw American shore. And happened, we went to Pensacola, the city that celebrates uh, that amazing day, the five flags. What happened, one of them was the Castilian Spanish flag. That day I thought, hmm, of sure Spain belongs to America. And who was going to tell me that after I finished my military service, uh, I came back to America.
1: Yeah, I, I uh, and you came back with a mind toward Getting into the restaurant business.
2: Well, I was very lucky because they offered me uh, uh, to come to work in a New York restaurant. It was before the Olympic Games of Barcelona '92, and there was a lot of businesses from uh, Spain and Catalonia that they wanted to do cultural things in the States. Restaurants was part of it, and I got e E2 visa and I came uh, to open as a cook uh, restaurant on paperwork six months. Uh, and who was going to tell me that 25 plus years later, uh, here I am.
1: You, uh, <coughs> you were 20, 21, 22 years old at the time?
2: Yeah, almost 22.
1: And after that gig, you, you went to Washington.
2: And I landed in Washington around January, February, 1993. One of my first guests coming on this restaurant in the middle of nowhere on 7th and e Northwest.
1: Quarter, very much,
2: yeah. the pen quarter that you could buy rocks at 3 p.m. In the middle of the day, no cars on the street. Who is the first person that almost comes through the doors? Senator Patrick Moynihan. Oh, no kidding. And through many conversations, I think one of them, one day told me, Jose, if, if you love America, America will all, always love you back. Uh, and that's the only thing I do
1: What made you decide to open up a restaurant there? Because, as you point out, it was it was pretty down on its luck neighborhood until the arena was built. And well, at the time I was used, uh, young, twenty
2: three years old. I came as the head chef, but my partners who found me, uh, Roberto Alvarez, who he became the uh, Dominic, Dominican Republic ambassador in the in United States, and Rob Wilder, uh, they are the ones that gave me the opportunity to to. To have a place to belong, I think we are always men and women looking for a place to belong. And I knew I was looking for my place to belong, and and Washington, I think, was a, a love affair in the moment I I arrived. I I, I enjoy the city. I love watching the White House, the Capitol, mm-hmm. the Mall, the Potomac, and I said, hmm, I think this is gonna be my place.
1: But that neighborhood, uh, what, what what I guess what I'm asking is, what made you bet on that neighborhood on? Penn well, my,
2: uh, actually, my partner saw that. That was very, very low rent. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, anymore. Yes. Uh, the, the landlord gave you a very, very, very good kind of uh, initial money to start up the business. And that's very much how many, many cities uh, began growing. And so my partners decided to make the bet. And, and the banks were not too, too thrilled. They were like, are you sure? <laughs> and you know one thing, uh, what I learned is that small businesses, in this case, restaurants, they can build and create neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Use one business at a time. Jaleo, we were the first very much. And yes. the Shakespeare Theater. But then the Verizon My gosh, came and everybody else. The, the
1: place is teeming with uh, activity now. I think you're right. I mean, uh, you know, these are quality of life things. And when a, when a good restaurant moves in, it changes the neighborhood. When businesses move in, it changes the neighborhood. So you made a good bet. Yeah,
2: and, and now we have in the area close to seven, seven businesses, eight businesses, and moving into other parts of the city now. Now Washington is a thriving, a thriving city more than ever. Uh, and I, you know, I always say I'm a Washingtonian with an accent.
1: <laughs> well, what you, uh, uh, one, one place that you don't have uh, a restaurant is in the, uh, is in the Trump Hotel. Uh, you are supposed to. And then you decided not to. Why? uh, Tell me about that. Well,
2: you know, uh, that was uh, back in the days uh, when uh, it was almost 24 years ago that I was dreaming about opening a restaurant there because we knew that one day the old post office Mm -hmm. had to become something else. And I remember talking about that building with Senator Moynihan, actually. So for me, it was uh, a dream to open there. Uh, The Trump organization got the rights to manage that property and convert it into a a hotel. I was able to sign uh, a lease for one of the spaces that was supposed to have a restaurant. And then is when Mr. Trump began making some comments uh, on the edge of normalcy about immigrants. And that day we began having conversations with Ivanka, which I always respected highly. Uh, and even I spoke to uh, Mr. Trump back in the days. So I remember him calling me and telling me, Jose, we're winning, we're winning. I'm like, Mr. Trump, I'm not running on your ticket. I only want to <laughs> open a successful restaurant. And you, with your comments, you are disparaging the same immigrants and Hispanics I am. I, I owe myself to those same Hispanics. My success is on the shoulders of those immigrants. And actually, I'm one of the very few companies for a small size that has e mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think I in think certain groups in American politics that they are very happy to try to be selling the, the idea of immigrants as, as people that take away jobs from others. Let me tell you right now, We cannot hire people. We are at 3.8, 3.9. For the last 10 years, it's been an amazing run on bringing down unemployment from the beginning of the Obama administration. Mr. Trump is enjoying that uh, windfall and keeps uh, uh, unemployment keeps going down. And right now, you cannot hire. But what we have, a reality is this. We have 11 million undocumented that they are part of the DNA of America. We have dreamers, super prepared Americans. Mm -hmm. They came here when they were babies. I think immigration and we should immigration reform. point out you're reform. wearing
1: a T-shirt that says we are all dreamers. Yep.
2: Immigration and immigration reform is not a problem for us to solve. It's an mm-hmm. opportunity for America to cease.
1: So when you made these points to uh, to Donald Trump, what was his response?
2: Because we we're winning. We're winning. Uh, why we don't talk after New Hampshire? I'm like, Mr. Trump, this is nine months from today. Uh, a few weeks later, he went on again and, and began with, the same comments about immigrants and if they were rapists and other things and i think that moment quite frankly uh, was for me at the end business decision then he sued me Uh, if i was him i would sue myself too i i I is at the end it's great to have a good judicial system works and then i sue him back because uh, that's sometimes the way you have to approach it i i offer settlement early on he didn't take it uh, he had even to, to testify uh, in the discovery pro- uh, process. But How did he do, do? I don't know, because it's all I see, all secret. But what I can tell you is that a few weeks after he became president, just, the lawyers just, uh, arrived to, to an arrangement, and, and he got what he wanted. He opened his hotel and his restaurant, and I got what I wanted, just to keep opening little restaurants one neighborhood at the time, but just somewhere else.
1: You, uh, y- the thing that has made you such a uh, noteworthy figure in Washington isn't just that you have wonderful restaurants, and I patronized all of them when I was uh, when I was uh, in the city. And I thank you for it. Uh, but uh, but that you also have been deeply, deeply involved in the community. When I first heard about you was about uh, your role in the D.C. Central Kitchen. Explain uh, that, what D.C. Central Kitchen is and your involvement in it. Well,
2: D.C. Central Kitchen is a place that gave me also hope for a better tomorrow. This was founded uh, on President Bush inauguration day by a man called Robert Egger, legendary. He was a barman. And he saw that there was a lot of waste of food going on around the restaurant industry. And his idea was food waste is wrong, but even it's is worse, wasting people. So he got those untouched plates of food on inauguration day and brought, brought them all to a central kitchen. He began getting homeless, cleaning them, giving them a sense of belonging by finding them a place to live and training them to be cooks. They will be in charge of putting those meals together and leading the volunteers that began coming to that kitchen and then sending that food to the communities. Uh, this is in kitchen today, feeds probably more than 8,000 people a day and has employed and trained thousands of men and women. This is the new NGOs. And to the
1: people who are trained go on to find um, jobs? To Have find you jobs? hired some of
2: them? Oh, yeah. And there are many success stories. Mm. And this is the type of NGO. They are. We need to be investing in NGOs that we don't throw money at the problem, but we invest into solutions. And Robert Eger always said that charity seems was always about the um, about uh, the redemption of the giver versus what should be, which is the liberation of the receiver. And we need to start seeing that in the 21st century, NGOs like that, they need to be really investing the dollars and knowing what the return on investment is. In our case, the return is we feed people and we train uh, homeless and ex-convicts that all of a sudden become a very important part of society. Robert Egger is in LA Kitchen right now in in Los Angeles doing the same amazing work in the heart of LA and thanks to him is hundreds of other kitchens that they've opened all across America.
1: And how much time do you spend on the, on the kitchen in DC?
2: Well, in the old days, I would go, like, one more cook and you spill potatoes. I became the chairman. Don't tell me why. And I always <laughs> try to be a good, as I call, uh, cheerleader. I do a lot of work on, on on making sure everybody's aware of them, making sure that Congress is aware of them, and making sure that we keep raising good money when it's needed to make sure that those uh, organizations keep moving forward.
1: And now you've taken the concept global uh, with the uh, World Central Kitchen that uh, uh, began in 2010 with, after the earthquake in Haiti. Tell me how that came about.
2: Well, uh, I, you know, I think it's from my Navy times that watching what happened in Abidjan and in the favelas in Rio Janeiro, and I always wanted to do something uh, in those type of places. And I think I was on vacation on Cayman Island when the 2010... Earthquake hit uh, Per Prince, and I had this urge to, to go and, and, and to try to help. But more than helping, I learned that you need to learn. So a few weeks after, I use, went there, and I spent there almost a couple of weeks uh, cooking from camp to camp. But mainly, it was my beginning of learning how can we be helping in those situations, and what are we done what are we not doing that should be done? And there is when I fall in love very much with the potential of Haiti as a country. And now we have many projects. Like one of them is I have this school that we train uh, young women. Uh, we take them out of the streets where they are cooking sometimes and use made up restaurants in the middle of nowhere uh, with charcoal cook stoves. And we bring them in, we train them uh, to be cooks. We 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 elevate their uh, english profile and then we find them jobs in the in the in the new thriving restaurant and hotel community which is going to be part of the future of Haiti. Haiti is a beautiful country with amazing story and i think if anything tourism is going to be a very important uh, economic uh, development for the country.
1: And who does the training? I mean who are the people who go in? Well,
2: we have uh, we have a lot of uh, Uh, If you go to our uh, webpage, worldcentralkitchen.org, there you're going to see that we have an amazing group of uh, talented chefs, men and women, that they are very much part of our volunteers. But obviously we have uh, a very good group. uh, But those guys can. I mean,
1: I know you've got uh, Anthony Bourdain and Tom Colicchio. Well, those
2: guys do all of the buff. Some of them just bring money. Uh-huh. By doing charities, I have, uh, I'm about to do what I, uh, a big one that I do every year around D.C. that we close more than 30 restaurants that is called Dine and Dash. So I bring Andrew Zimmern and, and Bourdain and Colicchio and helps raise a lot of money. I'm not going to lie to you. But then mm-hmm. uh, they are also involved in showing up when there we need people to be, to be helping. One of the big projects we did, we changed uh, 100 schools from charcoal to LPG. Why is this so important? Because everybody is talking to ending hunger by the year 2030. That's a big lie. ain't going to happen. The main reason it's not going to happen, and it's one of the little problems of the United Nations Millennium Goals, is that until we don't provide every family, every woman, with a clean kitchen, the same one that you and I have at home, so we liberate them, from their daily tasks of having to be cooking with charcoal. Right now, charcoal is killing more than 4 million women every year. Charcoal makes the kids unhealthy because the mother's carrying them on their arms. Young girls don't go to school because they send them to the forest to cut uh, wood when the family is too poor to buy charcoal. So they don't receive education. Rain comes, deforestation, the rains come down the mountain, takes away the topsoil that is supposed to be bringing a new uh, uh, happy uh, uh, harvest. All of a sudden, that, that same uh, uh, dirt ends on the ocean. No coral, no reef, because the water is cloudy. No fish, no coral, no reef, no hotels, no tourists, no scuba diving.
1: All from charcoal. Huh?
2: All of a sudden, we give them a humble mm-hmm. kitchen. The mothers are healthy. They save money and they put it on their pockets, helping the local econom- economies to become richer. Young girls have time to receive proper education. The forests thrive. The harvest multiply by 10. The ocean is healthy and the fishing output increases. Tourism shows up. And all because a very humble cook stove. We need to be bringing the conversation of cook stoves forward if we want to eradicate hunger and poverty in the and next And it's part years.
1: of the money you raise for these?
2: part of it. I, I have two roles. I am the ambassador of the Alliance of Clean Cookstoves. I was named by Secretary Clinton, and I took that role really seriously. So I go all around the world, bringing awareness to to, to many countries. And then I need also not only be a talker, but the doer. And so through my uh, World Central Kitchen, we make sure that clean cooking is at the heart of everything we do. And let me tell you, so far, we are doing very good. Very, 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 very good, successful programs. But I only see that the clinical subs are going to be listening more and more because it's the only way forward.
1: You, uh, you also responded uh, more recently to the the tragedies in Texas and then Puerto Rico. Uh, this was another one of those things where you just felt called when you when you when the disaster struck. So the hurricanes and floods.
2: You know, my team and I, we've been going to many. Uh, not only the earthquakes, but then we were in New York Sandy. We were in many other hurricanes in Haiti. So I guess we doing the do- same thing. Yeah, <laughs> we've been doing the NBA. Let me put it this way. And who was going to tell me that, yes, Houston, we did almost a quarter million meals. I was able to bring with me over 100,000 pounds of of chicken and beef, and we give them there to the big convention center. Uh, I heard on your shelter. on your way
1: to Houston that you stopped at Target and bought out their yeah. uh, their supply yeah. of pasta.
2: Red Cross gave me a mission and I was not successful because the place they want me to arrive was surrounded by water, and this is when I get very like next time I have to have a a car that is a boat. <laughs> so we we go into that kind of. But yeah, that that's that's what you have to do sometimes. But I'm.
1: They took a beating in that uh, the Red Cross for the way. Uh, that disaster was that was that warranted based on what you saw?
2: Well listen, the men and women of Red Cross, they they only can receive my compliments because they are amazing. They leave everything behind and use the go to serve fellow Americans. What they think everybody would agree is that we need to make sure that the big organizations, from FEMA to Salvation Army to Red Cross, that they are more ready to provide help when Americans are in need of that help. Because this is why we put our faith on them, sending them a paycheck. Mm-hmm. That's a matter if it's a $1 dollar or hundred million. We expect them to take care. When I arrived to Puerto Rico and I told my wife I will be there five days. Um, I arrived on Monday, three days after the Maria hit. And by Sunday, I hope I will be home. On, by Thursday night, I realized that was not the plan to fit an island that was not only a few thousand people about to go hungry. We were talking like the entire island was about to run out of food. The food was on the island. The private sector, my friend, works like amazing. What was not working was used the consensus in how to start providing that aid. And we went from one kitchen and 20 volunteers on that Monday, 1,000 meals, to more than twenty thousand volunteers in more than twenty-three kitchens and more than one hundred fifty thousand meals per day, uh, I think up to today, an organization that was never supposed to be there, that we had only two people on payroll and less than a million dollar of budget a year for many projects around six countries, uh, we are about to reach four million hot meals
1: served. You didn't. You didn't tell me when you actually did get home. Uh, after telling your wife you'd be home in five days? Well, I, I came back uh, almost uh, two weeks later,
2: uh, mainly because I, wanted, I I dehydrated myself, and I, I, I got in a couple of uh, <laughs> trouble. I hit myself against uh, the rocks crossing a river, and I'm not a millennial anymore, and so I <laughs> had to go back home two, three days to fix myself. But the team already was amazing. We, we went from having no plan to really having this master plan, uh, in part held by the army uh, uh, engineers, that they got me this amazing virtual uh, map of Puerto Rico. And there I was able to envision the impossible dream. If the entire island is hungry, because they have no money, ATMs, banks closed, they have no 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 electricity no gas in the stations because nobody can pump nobody could move nobody could talk on the phone because all the cell signals were gone we are talking we're talking about real chaos not one day but for months. food was something like nobody had at one point and the only thing we did was can we bring food to the most quantity of americans in puerto rico and we were the first ones serving food in vieques the six thousand uh, people Island, uh, uh, Culebra, 1,000 people. We were able to bring uh, uh, water treatment, uh, solar-run uh, machines. Uh, we began bringing medicines because we we gathered so much intelligence, one neighborhood at a time, that we knew not only the people were hungry, but this person needed this medicine, this person did, needed this and other you
1: And these meals, you provide them on an ongoing basis. It wasn't like a... A hit-and-run kind of thing? No.
2: Every time we made contact with one, uh, we began serving the hospitals the first days. Because the hospitals had food for the patients, but not for the doctors and the nurses. And what was the issue? That the doctors and nurses were working 24-7. And what was the issue? That they had no money. And if they had money, they had no restaurants. And if they had uh, and the supermarkets were empty and sometimes the lines were two, three, four hours to go and they only would let you buy one or two things.
1: What, what were you thinking when you, you you couldn't have anticipated what you confronted there? Uh, and you mentioned all, all of these Americans who were going who were starving. and uh, you know the important word here is Americans, these are American citizens. You had just recently, become an american citizen mm-hmm.
2: yeah i became american almost three years ago but i always learned that belonging to somewhere is not written in a passport you belong because you work to belong and for me i, I know where i come from but i also know where i belong and even with an accent i have i'm so proud of 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 living here, how much America has given me and the only thing I could do is give back. I have these three amazing American born daughters. Who is the least I could be doing for them. So for me being in Puerto Rico I What I are think they doing
1: that right now by the way?
2: One is in NYU first year, the other the other two. But you know, they they love this type of work and I have to make sure that now they don't all want to go into humanitarian work on their own. But uh, they're good girls, uh, and, and they came, for example, with me to Puerto Rico. On Thanksgiving Day, we did more than 40,000 Thanksgiving meals. Um, we were working almost 18 hours straight. We, we began working at 1 a.m., and by the time we finished at 8 p.m. The, the next day on Thanksgiving Day, we all sat to have this amazing Thanksgiving. But we, well, we delivered more than 40,000 meals from, by boat, by plane, by helicopter, by Humvee.
1: I hate to tell you this, but if they go into humanitarian work, it may be your fault.
2: No, but first they're going to be learning business and (laughs) economics. I do believe the new way to be solving the problems of the world, really, is to have a more uh, pro-business approach. And I sincerely believe that. We, we, we cannot, I said before, keep throwing money at the problems. We need to start investing in smart solutions. In Haiti, I have, we have an orphanage that has worked very well. We open a bakery. All the kids are handicapped. So we built almost the first Caribbean bakery handicap ready. We produce bread not only for the kids and all the people that work in that orphanage, but we are selling the bread and we're making money. Those are sustainable smart investments. Then we open a restaurant. Then we open another bakery. Uh-huh. And those are the types of things that I believe are the way forward.
1: So uh, just to return to my original question, what was your initial reaction when you got to Puerto Rico and saw just how screwed up everything was? Well, uh, the,
2: whole, the whole thing was building because I, I began using cooking, answering the, the needs of the hospitals. But as people found out that we were doing this, the phone calls never stopped coming. Facebook. Um, if anybody could send a message through Facebook, uh, reporters will begin telling us in this neighborhood nobody has shown up for a week, for two weeks. They're hungry. This this other place have no water. And and for me it was very clear that I, I had to to sound a little bit crazy because I will go to FEMA and I will tell FEMA guys, uh, I need your help. I need we need to do this. Well, you don't understand how this works. Everything has a process and, and what, what the process means. Well, you never work with us, you need contracts. I'm, I don't want contracts, I want to feed the people. Uh, at the very beginning, I began paying everything out of pocket and out of credit card. Uh, I'm a business guy at the end of the day. I a an account not knowing that we were going to be getting into millions. At the end, uh, FEMA came in uh, and, and I'm very, very proud of the men and women of FEMA. Even they made it harder than they need to. You sometimes know, sometimes you know, I feel like FEMA can be a smaller, a smaller group of people, much more efficient, and have many more people on the field. Uh, I think the men and women of FEMA are wonderful, but sometimes everything I heard is always about red tape, red tape. We cannot do this, we cannot do that. But then if you keep insisting three days later, they will do the same thing they told you they couldn't do. But there you wasted the time, and you wasted time. And the issue is this, in terms of food, we cannot be planning for a week or two weeks or three weeks. The word emergency, we need to take it at face value. When we talk about food and water and Americans means now. Yeah. Now, even if you can yesterday.
1: <laughs> yeah. And why do you think that uh, obviously Puerto Rico's an island, but is that the extent of it? I mean, the you, you know, the obvious question is did Puerto Rico get treated differently in some way than Houston or some of the other places that were uh, pounded by these storms. Obviously, you know my perception, because in life is That's all I'm asking you for. Um,
2: I, I didn't see the. the I, I saw much more help devoted to Houston uh, than to Puerto Rico. But also, we need to understand that this has been a brutal hurricane season. Yes, and we yeah. could have excuses of why Puerto Rico and they may be more start. brutal in the future, given the climate but, science. But but then, if we put numbers of how many people we devoted to help after the earthquake in Haiti versus how many people we devoted to help an entire American island of more than three million people, numbers speak for themselves. We put many more troops and many more people helping Haiti in its moment than we did in Puerto Rico. And even if we do the same comparison with the tsunami in Japan, you will see that America went all the way in to help a friendly country, as it should be. so. Jose, I, why? I guess that we we, we have to put uh, the leaders who are in charge. Uh, I, it's not about blaming. I don't know if it was the Trump administration uh, that was very new in the job. And let's face it, uh, not every of our leaders comes with a master's MBA on uh, emergency yeah, situations. No, I can tell
1: you, by, because... We face these kinds of situations, and uh, every one of them. I mean, you have people who are expert at dealing with these disasters, and we had good experience with FEMA. But, you know, when you're in the White House, you're faced with new situations every day that you haven't dealt with.
2: What I think we need to be doing is uh, breaking down the teams, slightly smaller teams, and put, as you said, people that sometimes are going to be from the private sector because they know best. The water situation was not a hurricane problem. was a man-made, created problem. Within even their own Puerto Rican government was uh, people inside the government mm-hmm. that they were having a different view about if the water was ready to be drunk or if not. This created kind of news chaos mm-hmm. in, in Puerto Rico. At the end, nobody was drinking the water, even if some of the water maybe was good to be drunk. All of a sudden, 3 million people they recommend a gallon of water per person, you have to be bringing 3 million gallons of water into Puerto Rico. It's almost impossible. But even if you could, how do you distribute Mm -hmm. 3 million gallons of water? It's an impossibility. So those are the kind of questions that I hope we're going to be answering. Because if this happens ever again, At least, I hope that we really learn. We said that Katrina was never going to happen. Mm -hmm. And even the Superdome happened. How we kept during five days American people in the Superdome going hungry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that was a very simple problem to fix. But we didn't. Uh, I think we are learning from those sometimes. I see what has happened in Houston at the Convention Center, how they put more than 12,000 12, Americans, how we provide help with food, with water, uh, health services, et cetera. So the Superdom, maybe, yes, we learn from it. But then Puerto Rico happened, and nobody was so, prepared. So
1: I, you know what I'm getting at, and you're, you're very smart, so I know that you're, you're, uh, you know what I'm getting at, uh, which is, were one of the things that 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 happened in Katrina was that there was a sense that there were people who were just overlooked because they were poor because they were black, uh, and there uh, and and there is this question as to whether people in Puerto Rico who are American citizens were treated as sort of stepchildren in this whole process. Uh, again, those are perceptions.
2: The I'm just asking in yours. Didn't America provide more help because, let's face it, Puerto Ricans in the island, uh, they vote, but their vote doesn't count for presidentials. So it's not any different than what happens in Washington, that still the 650,000 Washington D.C. citizens, our vote means zero. And when you don't vote, they don't take you seriously, I guess. Mm -hmm. In part was that. Uh, but the, we can be blaming what what happened during 10 20 30 years of different governors and different mm-hmm. American policies like the Jones act towards the island mm-hmm. that have, uh, has created a Puerto Rico that is very poor and a very big debt but I do believe that's an opportunity Puerto Rico is a fascinating island in the it Caribbean is. that can be creating remember not too long ago the vast majority of medicines and uh, they were, they were, they, they were done in Puerto Rico. Actually, American hospitals were having a shortfall of ibis and other medical uh, medicines uh, because many of those factories were unoperational. Right. So, it's an a strategic part of America national security in terms of health to have a, a healthy Puerto Rico. So, did we forget Puerto Rico? I, I do believe that to the degree we didn't had. Uh, a big effort of saying problems are huge. Uh, The electric grid went down. Why it took so long to anybody to act upon? We know that we put the pressure on the governor. It's the governor who is in charge. And right now, many people say if the governor didn't wait too long. But sometimes I do believe in these situations, and I don't know how we're going to do this. Maybe we need to take it away from the governor in charge, of, and bring the people that know how. If the problem is that the electric grid of Puerto Rico went down, who is the best person to fix it immediately? At least within weeks. We are eight, nine months after it happened. The next hurricane season is well, about and, to And hit. we
1: know the electric system went down Not again. too long ago, only yes. a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah.
2: And still is probably more than 50,000 Puerto Ricans, if no more, that it still has no electricity. So are you again,
1: confident that this won't happen again in Puerto Rico? At this, as you sit here today.
2: I already uh, am watching closely the news, and many people think like this is going to be the biggest hurricane season in the history. Mm -hmm. Now it's going to be like a lottery. How many hurricanes are going to be hitting the islands, and how many are going to be hitting Florida, other parts of the United States. And that's a reality we have to face. This is going to happen. And it's not if will happen, but when will happen. And I hope that FEMA is doing the it's work. It's kind of on a readiness. budget
1: issue also because, you know, you, they, the, the, you have to, if you don't budget for these extraordinary things, then you have to appropriate for them afterwards in a federal budget that is overwrought right now. The reality is
2: going to happen. And I'm sure it's going to happen. Virgin Islands is still trying to come back to normal. Other islands like Dominica. But Puerto Rico, I can tell you, if we get hit by another hurricane, uh, I don't know what is going to happen the day after. What I can tell you is that our group of chefs, we already have a plan to be ready to be feeding Americans. The very least we can be doing to show that we care for them, for every American, is just to bring a humble plate of food. We cannot solve every problem but at least we will be there to try to make sure that food is not part of the problem you, so we can take care of everything else.
1: You have a book coming out in the fall called We Fed an Island. Tell me about that.
2: Well, I, I brought this book with the help of my friend, Richard Wolf, who came with me uh, almost 10 days after. I used, sent him a text. I need you. And I think he understood perfectly what I meant. So we're gonna be telling the story of what happened, how we arrived there with very much nothing but the hope of feeding the few and at the end we end feeding the many and how many chefs of Puerto Rico that lost everything. We were able to put a team of more than 20,000 men and women with a very simple mission. Um, we didn't meet, we didn't plan, we gathered the food, we cleaned the kitchens and put the generators and we began feeding one American Puerto Rican at a time. And this is the lesson that sometimes the bigger problems, they have very simple solutions uh sometimes i think we overcomplicate things
1: and uh you know listening to you uh you know you're you're always going to be known for your incredible restaurants but your enthusiasm for these humanitarian uh ventures seems to me to be the thing that gets your engine going mm-hmm more than anything
2: listen i again i i always say that people like me we feed the few but but we have a talent that we can use to feed the many and i don't think the 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 food industry my industry can escape the reality that food is at the heart of many of the issues humanity faces today food is about hunger and it's about obesity but it's Food is also about world peace if we don't start thinking about water production. And food is a science. F- food is at the heart of what humanity is. It's the only thing we do from the moment we're born to almost the moment we die next to breathing. Food has to become. I've done quite a bit
1: of it myself.
2: But food has to become a more important topic from now on when a congressman or senator is trying to run for. We need to be, start asking, what's your food plan for America? Because food can be creating employment. Food can be used uh, helping rural America to come back from almost America that seems is going down. Food can be solving hunger issues. Food can be solving health issues. Food can be creating used wealth. More than 10% of the planet workforce dedicates itself to providing food. To humanity, Food should be a more important topic even on the presidentials.
1: Well, and it's going to become a bigger challenge given the climate change that we're experiencing because there are parts of the world in which, uh, in which the reliable food sources are going to be threatened by changes in the climate.
2: For example, in Haiti, I have a, a, a big... Uh, Um, uh, project that I've been going down and down where I have this farm and we provide uh, the vegetables to a school nearby in the middle of nowhere in the mountains uh, from Beret, Palmistampe, and and I've been trying to drill go down to look for water and we cannot find water and it's a very dry part of the island it's technology we're gonna have to invest more in technology we are investing in this machine uh, that is gonna be able to provide more than 50 gallons of water per day only extracting the humidity of the air the technology is there. We're gonna to have to do more to invest quicker, to invest faster, to make sure that precisely those problems become opportunities. If there we have no water, it's a good way to do it using solar energy. We can be bringing water to that little town in the middle of nowhere, Haiti. If I'm able to succeed there, I know I'll be able to succeed in other parts of the world. Again, I keep repeating: the problems are huge. Yes. But if we start breaking them down in a smaller. And we start building from there. Then we can solve very much any big challenge that humanity faces in the twenty-first so century. So again,
1: I listen to you, and I'm wondering, like, what what gives you more satisfaction? A thing like the, the the enormous task that you undertook in Puerto Rico and cooking. I guess it's for millions at this point, millions of meals served, uh, or uh, opening up a new restaurant.
2: Well, I think we all face this moment. No, It's probably when when, when you left whatever you were doing used to surf and, and trying to to, to, to put uh, uh, Mr. Obama uh, mm-hmm. in the White House. You had a role to play like many uh, many others. I think my role and the role of fellow chefs, yes, I feed a few. I have to start Michelin. I want to have three. I want to be in the list of the 50 best of the world that my restaurant is not yet, and I hope one day I will be. All those things, yes. If any of the judges
1: are listening, I... I, Well, yeah, but I'm not trying to buy them
2: (laughs) out. But but those things are important. But you know one thing? I have so many amazing young talent around me that I think I've been doing this for over 30 years. I don't mind to be passing many Mm -hmm. of those things to them and start putting them on the front, on the forefront. And myself, I'm 48. Uh, uh, By the time I'm 50, probably I'm going to be moving more and more into this. Uh, into this role, probably yes. Why? Because it fulfills no, 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 my personal needs. But uh, I think we need to be showing that if we want, we can. Uh, who was going to be saying that uh, a young kid that was 50 years old could be dreaming about all those crazy things? But I've seen many people before me achieving amazing things with nothing. Clara Barton just happened had her house in front of Haleo me being a 23 years old and knowing that in that little house in front of my restaurant that woman very much was able to show us what being a humanitarian looks like and somebody that was not known was able thanks to her hard work to create red cross with the so many wonderful things red cross has done over a century listen uh, i think if we can we all should put our effort in helping if it's only one person to our right That's one more person that is going to be doing better off thanks to our help. So I think it's the role of every American and every person on this planet to try to do for others you don't know what you will do for your own family. I think this is the new American dream, and I'm going to make sure that my daughters receive uh, uh, the America I always love and and the world we all dream of.
1: Well, we should note that as we sit in Chicago today, you're here because you received the uh, 2018 Humanitarian of the Year Award uh, from the James Beard Foundation. I don't even have to explain why you received that award. Anybody who's listened to this conversation knows that. But part of what you said there was, I want you to see the world's greatest challenges, not as problems, but as opportunities for us to serve hunger, poverty, environmental destruction, and equal treatment of women in the workplace, and immigration reform for the millions of hardworking immigrants who feed America and make our country great, especially the dreamers and the more than 11 million undocumented that deserve to be part of the American dream. That that is that your agenda for the for your next your next act?
2: I think it's, uh, it's gonna be a busy schedule, but you know, <laughs> Jon Stenbeck on the Grapes of Wrath said, uh, John told the main character said, that whatever, whenever there is a fight, so hungry people will eat, I will be there. I think that phrase just sums up everything. I think it's not anymore though about the I, it's about we, the people. Those are three powerful words.
1: Do you, do you, do you, you know, on this point, um, do, you, do you think, uh, what, how have the people affected you, who you've, you know, who you've come into contact with, People, the people in Puerto Rico, uh, the people at the, uh, at the DC uh, kitchen, the people who you've touched and who've touched you over all these years? Um,
2: every one of those people have some amazing stories. And what happens in our society sometimes is that in a moment we are talking about the building a wall to separate America from the rest. Uh, Sometimes we don't need to build walls. We have walls in our own communities where we are in cities that we don't cross the river and we don't go to the other side because the people over there, they are not like the people over here. Uh, And we need to start raking those walls. And when you are able to cross a bridge and reach those other people that maybe don't talk like you or maybe don't look like you. And then you see them that they they have the same dreams you have and the same hopes for their children. And you see that all of the time when you reach them and they reach you together, you become more powerful. It's so simple, that idea, that that's why America has done so well. Because immigrants like me, we are those bridges. We're bridges of uniting faraway places and show people that we are far, far more more equal than not. And in the moment we see this, you can be a Republican and Democrat, you can be whatever you want, but you respect each other and you believe that together, we're gonna be stronger. And in the moment you arrive to that simple conclusion, Everything is simple. That's why maybe we need to have more chefs in the Senate and Congress, because it'll be a beautiful table like this one where everybody will be sharing a plate of food and right there having conversations about how we should be investing more time in what brings us together than not in what makes us different and breaks us apart. And this is the type of leadership we need in Washington, and this is the type of leadership we need in our
1: communities. Uh, What about you? You can move across the border to one of those states that actually has representation in the United States Senate and run yourself. Well,
2: actually, I vote in Maryland.
1: All know. right, good. Well, there's, I, I there's vote some news we're breaking I, news I vote here. in
2: Maryland, but uh, um, I think we need to start fighting for Washington D.C., where the 650,000 American citizens' their vote finally counts. And and I think I'm gonna see it in my lifetime.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think one day. I think one day we're gonna have to go to Congress and say, you know, one thing. You wanna eat out? <laughs> uh, I don't think you're going to eat until that, you don't give us the same rights that every that, other single that's American That's a lot has. of leverage,
1: my friend. I, I, think think we, leverage. I, I think
2: maybe we start something here. I think I'm going to go one way with no restaurants open uh, because it's very unfair, I would say, that uh, Washington doesn't have true representation.
1: You actually did close your restaurants down for a day uh, to protest uh, uh, the policies on immigration. Uh,
2: actually, we we did and began only because my team came to to tell me, Jose, don't get upset with us, but we will not come to work, or we will come but we will do not do anything, and um, we don't need you to pay us or anything. But I want you to know that we are doing this. So I didn't do it on my own initiative, mm-hmm. but I did it supporting them the same way they've been supporting how me. How did
1: your How did your patrons react? Oh, everybody
2: was super supportive on that end. Um, I, I believe that, uh, if one day all the immigrants and especially the undocumented and I think this may happen, they come together and one day they say, we're going to stop doing anything until you don't recognize who we are, that we are not ghosts in the system, but real people, uh, contributing to the American dream. Uh, I think that day we will see how we will not be able to play in any golf course, how we will not be able to eat in any restaurant, how we will not able to go to a supermarket because the shelves will be empty. You'll see what will happen. So that's why immigration reform should be something like every American, Republican or Democrat, should be supporting, and it's about time we make it happen.
1: Well, let me just say this. You, you sir, are a great American, and... Uh, uh, not just a great story, but such an asset to our country. And uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm proud to know you. Proud of what you're doing. Proud of the difference that you're making. And grateful that you're here today. Thank you
2: for having me. And let's keep this conversation on how one plate of food at a time can solve the big challenges we face today. We will do it. Let's do it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.